chapter 26 of Numbers. We're going to look at two chapters. I told you last week that when we got to this chapter, it's, it's uh, just one long narrative about the uh, tribes and the numbers and the tribes. You remember the book of Numbers. The, the question could be, why did they call it that? Why is the book of Numbers titled Numbers? Well, at the very beginning of the book, chapter 1, you have a long list of numbers. God numbers the people by tribes, and he arranges them around the tabernacle in the first 13 chapters of Numbers. He's arranging and organizing these people who have been slaves. They haven't really had a leader. They've been slapped and, and whipped and, and made to be laborers in Egypt. They're not independent. They don't have their own government. And God has taken his people and, and they've exited the Egypt and uh, he has to reform them into his nation. So he numbers all the tribes. So the book of Numbers is called Numbers because of chapter 1 and then also chapter 26. The bookends of this chapter really are all about the numbers or the census that God orders the people to take because he wants them to know at the very beginning, how many fighting men they have, because as they go through the wandering in the wilderness, they're going to come up against enemies, like they just did in the past chapter where they defeated the, the southern Canaanites, the Moabite king Shihon and, and the other king. So uh, they're, they're starting these battles, and God had numbered them at the beginning to organize them. Now at the end, he's numbering them, preparing them to go into the promised land. They are right on the border. They're right across the river from Jericho right now. The closest they've been is Kadesh Barnea, and that was back a few chapters ago. Remember when they got to Kadesh Barnea, Moses sent in spies. There were 12 of them. They went in there, and they saw the fortified cities, and they saw the giants, and the, the produce was phenomenal. Two came back with a good report. Ten came back. The majority report was bad. The people listened to the majority report, and God's judgment upon all those people that in unbelief didn't trust the Lord, he said, okay, you're going to die in the wilderness. So for 38 years, they've been wandering around and around and around. God hasn't let them go in. Now they're back at the border. They're right at the border, right next to Jericho, and they're about to go in. So God calls them to number. He's going to get them the numbers of all the tribes, which is really interesting because you can compare the number from the beginning and after the generations, you can compare the number of the people. The, the first generation, they're, they're gone. They've all died because God said you're not going in there because you're unbelief. And so that's the importance of the numbers. So we'll be looking at this chapter. It's long. What We're going to buzz through this chapter and jump into chapter 27 where there's some real neat content. So let's ask God's blessing and we'll study together. Father, thank you for the word as we open it tonight. Speak to our hearts. It's your word, and it's unchanging. And uh, from it, we learn many life lessons, and we can see the history and the way you work in the lives of people. And so, Father, I, I just pray that you would prepare us, Lord, to read this. And as we study, may there be application for each and every one of us here tonight. And Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Notice... At the end of chapter 25, or the, the last portion of chapter 25, there's the plague against those people, the 24,000 
uh, people that die. And then here in verse 1 of chapter 26, we begin with, it came to pass after the plague that the Lord spoke to Moses and Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saying, take a census of all the congregation of the children of Israel from 20 years old and above by their father's houses, all who are able to go to war in Israel. So Moses and Eliezer the priests spoke with them in the plains of Moab by the Jordan, across from Jericho, saying, Take a census of the people from 20 years old and above, just as the Lord commanded Moses and the children of Israel who came out of the land of Egypt. So here in chapter 26, God is commanding Moses to take a new census, a new counting of the people. And this is Moses really spending the final weeks of his life preparing the people. And we'll see at the end of this chapter his end. God's going to reveal to him uh, his end. But he's really stoked. They're, they're close. They're almost in the land. It's, it's been his goal, his lifetime goal, to finally get into the promised land. Now, God has already told him because of his disobedience, he's not going to let him in there, but, but Moses doesn't stop. He works until the end. He's preparing the people to claim the land. This brand new generation, remember the old generation has died in the 38 years of wandering in circles. And so now this new generation needs to be prepared to claim the land that God's promised them. So the newest census that is being assigned here to Moses, Eleazar, and, and to the elders there is for the purpose of distributing the land. God is going to give land. He's promised land. He promised it to Abraham. This is the Abrahamic covenant being fulfilled as God told Abraham that he was going to give land to his people. And so now when they go into Canaan, they all know this. They've heard this story. They've been wandering for years and years, and they they know that when they get there, they're going to get land. So they're excited about the land. But how are they going to distribute the land? Who is going to make the decision about who gets what land and how much they get? It's the census that God has, has called uh, Moses to, and Joshua or, or uh, Aaron to do here that help us to understand that. The, the census is all to give land to these people. So the first census revealed... If we were to go back to chapter 1 and read, we'd find out there were 603,550 soldiers available. That's according to chapter 1, verse 45. Women and children weren't counted. These were fighting men. God was, was, was putting the men together. He counted over 600,000 men. So when you add several children with each man, maybe more than several, because remember God promised that they'd be fruitful and they'd multiply. God's blessed them from the beginning. So these people have gone from, even in their slavery and their harsh conditions, God has multiplied them, and we believe that possibly three million people have left Egypt. And out of the three million, there's 603,000 fighting men from the first census in chapter one. Again, it's a remarkable number because it means that as they move through now the desert and there's attrition and the generation has died, we're going to see a new number emerge as we look at this uh, census. And it's, it's really 
uh, another amazing number. Um, the one generation has been totally replaced. That's what we're to see in the narrative here. But the application is, is very interesting. As I thought about uh, this today, as I was studying today and thinking about what, what's so important about the number, what's the, the first number and the last number, here's, here's the importance. God is always working in our lives, and he has a goal for us, and he's going to get us there. Some of us are, are being pulled along by God, kicking and screaming. Some of us are going willingly by faith. It's really a choice that you make to follow and obey God, even through the hard times. Or you can kick and scream and throw a fit and argue with God. Never does you any good, does it? It's so important to go with the Lord. These people were kicking and screaming and murmuring and complaining the whole way. And God was teaching them. They're learning to trust in God, but they're still infantile in their learning. Remember, this is a new generation. So God is teaching them, and he's helping them. And as we look at these numbers tonight, you'll see that God is working behind the scenes to accomplish his plan. Sometimes we wonder, Lord, when am I going to have enough money for savings? Or when am I going to have a job that provides uh, more for my family, uh, a better car, whatever, a, a nicer home? And the answer really is God providing in his time for you. And when we look at this, we see exactly God's sovereign work in the people's lives, getting them from one place to another. A whole generation has passed, a new generation has come, and he's still got his people, and he's still leading his people. He's still doing miracles, and he's still doing miracles today. I believe God does miracles, and he will do what he will do to bring about his goal in our lives. So here, in this chapter, that's very long, by the way. I'm sure you've already looked at that. Um, we get the number of his people, and they're all by tribes. And again, that's how we get the name for the book of Numbers. But it begins with this second. I'm, I'm just calling it the second census, my first point. But look at verse 2 again. Take a census, God tells Moses, of all the congregation of the children of Israel from 20 years old and above, by their fathers' houses, all who are able to go to war. So these are only men that are able to fight in a, in a war. So that would exclude uh, children, that would exclude elderly, 20 years and above, and, and we've talked about that age, that older age was in the 50s somewhere. I I, I'd, I'd miss this draft. I'm 61, so I would have missed this one. But these, they're really drafted by God. God is putting together this draft, and they're going to be counted because he needs them. The first census back in chapter 1 was primarily to organize the slaves from their bondage 400 years into this military organization of fighting men and around the tabernacle and for God to just give them his uh, new laws for the new nation and the new people and the new, new direction. This new census that we're reading about tonight really is a military draft, all who are able to go to war, verse 2. So they're going to go into the land, and they're going to conquer. It's, it's occupied. There are Canaanites that are living there. 
when the spies went in, they saw them, and some of them were giants, remember? So there's people there that God wants displaced. God is sovereign. He can do what he will, but you'll discover as you study the Canaanite culture, when you study the people, they were worshipers of Asheroth and Baal. They sacrificed children. They were slave owners. They owned women. Women had no rights whatsoever in this culture. They were, they were like chattel. They were bought and sold as teeny boppers. You know, they, they were used. A very, very barbaric culture when you study. You can look it up if you want to and study the Canaanite culture. So God had already judged them, and he's going to use his nation of Israel, to judge these idolatrous people, the Canaanites, and push them out of the land. And then he's going to give his children that land, that large land. We call it Israel today. It's really just a sliver. It's just a teeny little sliver of land. It takes, and I've done it, in a bus. You can go from the north to the south in about six hours. You can go east to west in a couple hours. It's not that big. It's just a teeny little landmass. It was larger in described in the Bible, uh, and it's it's an interesting study when you study the geography of the area and you study the the people of the area and all the battles that have that have happened all surrounding this one little piece of land. Even today, it's a a valuable piece of land to the many in the world. But God is preparing His people to be a fighting machine. And so only 20-year-old men are numbered that can fight. That's the the point there. And from verses 5 through 50, we're going to see all these tribes counted. And we're going to go quickly through. We're not going to read every little uh, name because I can't do it anyway. If you can, you're a much better person at at, uh, pronouncing Hebrew names than I am. But let's go through these really quick, and I'll just highlight real quickly. We start with the tribe of Reuben, in verses 5 through 11, but just we'll just read a couple of verses. Reuben was the firstborn of Israel, it says in verse 5. And then jump to verse 7. These are the families of the Reubenites. Those who were numbered of them were, here's the important number, 43,730. The first census back in chapter 1, counting Reuben and his family, was 46,500 men that were ready for war. Now, so it's 38 years later, and they count this number here, 43,730. So that's a loss of about 2,700 people. Then notice verse 9. The sons of Eliab were Nemuel, Dathan, Abram. These are the, the Dathan and Abram representatives of the congregation who contended with Moses and Aaron with Korah. So they're mentioned here because of their rebellion. When they contended against the Lord, verse 10, and the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them together with Korah when when that company died, when the fire devoured 250 men and they became a sign. Remember the censers? They all took the censers because they wanted to be priests. We want to be priests too. So they took their little censer like the priests would take and for some reason the censer they were holding exploded, you know, and burnt them alive, these 250 false priests. Verse 11, nevertheless, the children of Korah did not die. So you have his Korah died, but some of his kids still live. That's the, the point here. And the co-leaders of this rebellion with Korah, they died. And 
their names are written as an example for the nation. Don't rebel against the Lord. Don't rebel against your leader. That's really what this is all about because these rebels become a sign. They're a sign there in verse 10, meaning that they're a sign of rebellion, of what not to do in future generations. Then we have the tribe of Simeon, verse 12 through 14. And the important number there is, is they're counted 45,650 men ready for war. At the beginning in verse chapter 1, here in chapter 26, they count 40,500. So again, there's a loss of about 5,000 men. The tribe of Judah, verse 19. Again, Judah was counted 74,600 men in chapter 1. Here, 38 years later, 76,000. So there's a gain of about almost 2,000 there. The tribe of Iskar, verses 23 through 25. Uh, again, the, you pronounce that Issachar. It's a, it's a really, Hebrew is a really interesting language. They like to roll the R too. Very interesting. But Issachar. And Issachar's there, 54,400 men in the first census, and now they've got 64,000. So they've gained about 18%. Then you have the tribe of Zebulun, 57,000 in the chapter 1, 60,000 here in chapter 26. The tribe of Manasseh, verse 28. Again, the first census of Manasseh was counted 32,000, ready for war. 38 years later, 52,000. So they've gained 20,000, or 60%. So there's, there's one tribe that's been very fruitful. Then you have Ephraim in verse 35. Again, they, they lost about 8,000. The tribe of Benjamin, verse 38. They gained a few, up to about 10,000 tribe of Dan was 62,000. 38 years later, it went up to 64,000. The tribe of Asher went from 41,000 to 53,000. So there's, there's like three tribes that really lost a lot, and then there's a, the, more of the tribes gained. Naphtali in verse 48 went from 53,000 down to 45,000. But the number here, this is the important, total number of fighting men was 601 these are those who were numbered of the children of Israel, verse 51, 601,730. That's a loss, a net loss of 1,800 men from the very first census 38 years ago. Here's, here's the application here. What we see in these numbers isn't increase. We see in these numbers, we don't see um, uh, fruitfulness in the tribes, we see stagnation. Why? Because they've been unfaithful, because they haven't obeyed the Lord. God said, when you obey me, I'll bless you. They weren't obeying the Lord. They were whining, complaining. They had rebellion among them. The first generation had to be wiped out before the second new generation could come in. And so they're really just stagnant there. Their unbelief, their distrust in God kept them just at this, just bored just bored with the Lord, just going every day, whatever, just nothing means, nothing spiritual, just going through the motions, no excitement, no reading the Bible, no trusting in the Lord, no walking in the Spirit, just kind of stagnation. They should have grown. Israel's people should have grown. They should have trusted the Lord. They should have put their faith in God. They should have been a blessing to their leader. 
but they weren't. And so as a result, there's a generation that died because of their unbelief and their nation numbers are stagnated. Now in, in these next couple of verses, 52 through 56, God is going to show why he's, they're counting. They're going to inherit land. Notice this verse 52. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, To these the land shall be divided as an inheritance, according to the number of names. To the large tribe you shall give a larger inheritance, God tells Moses. To a small tribe you shall give a smaller inheritance. Each shall be given its inheritance according to those who were numbered of them. But the land shall be divided by lot, they shall inherit according to the names of the tribes of their fathers. According to the lot, their inheritance shall be divided between larger and the smaller. So again, the, the general principle here is God's going to give the larger tribes more land. I mean, it makes perfect sense, right? But you probably noticed, if you were taking note of all those tribes, there was one tribe that was not mentioned there. And that's the priestly tribe of who? Levi, right? So we have the tribe of Levi. Notice verse 57. These are those who were numbered of the Levites according to their families. Of Gershon, the family of the Gershonites. And remember the co-family or the Kohath family of the Kohathites. That's a joke. I joked with you about that before. And then Merari, not Ferrari, the family of the Marianites there. These are the families of the Levites, the family of the Libanites, the family of the Hebronites, the family of the Mahalites, the family of the Mushites, and the family of the Korathites. That's why I didn't read this whole thing, (laughs) by the way. And then we have the uh, name of Amram's wife, Jochebed, the daughter of Levi. So we got Moses' family in here. Was born a Levi of Egypt to Amram. She bore Aaron, Moses, and her sister Miriam. To Aaron was born Nadab and Abihu. We heard, read all about those guys. Remember Strange Fire? Eleazar and Ithamar and Nadab and Abihu died when they, oh, that was those two, pardon me. Nahab and Abihu who died when they offered profane fire to the Lord. Now those who were numbered of them were 23,000. Every male from a month old and above. That's interesting. The other men were named 20 years and above. The Levites are named every male from one month old and above, for they were not numbered among other children of Israel because there was no inheritance given them among the children of Israel. So why aren't the Levites named in that first numbering? Because they're not going to get any land. Levites, the priesthood, was never given any land. As you study the Old Testament, you discover that God has separated the Levites to serve him. They weren't to go to war. war. They weren't to build cities or govern. They were to do the work of the ministry at the temple and in sub-areas all throughout the land. There would be Levites scattered all around to do the ministry that God had them do. And the people would provide for the priests through sacrifices and the tithe. The tithe was for the temple tax was all for the priests and the workers and their families. And so these men, the Levites, these men were separated for God's use and God's service to operate the tabernacle, to make atonement for the people's sins. They were holy to the Lord, and they're not given land like the other tribes. Because think about this. Their inheritance really is greater 
It's not land, it's the Lord. Their inheritance is the Lord. They're serving the Lord. They're pleasing the Lord. One of the most wonderful things, and it's hard to even express this, I don't think you understand how wonderful it is to serve the Lord in full-time ministry. And I think our missionaries would say that. I think that if you had a church that had a full-time custodian, he would say that. There's nothing greater than just serving the Lord and being in, in God's temple. And it doesn't mean it's not hard. It doesn't mean it doesn't come with hardship. But it's a wonderful, wonderful responsibility because our inheritance isn't money. And when it is, that's when you know the pastor is, or the leader or the televangelist is ripping off the sheep because he's wearing the suit and the ring and the watch and all the fancy schmancy stuff. Life in the ministry isn't, you don't have to be poor to live in it. God provides. But those that serve in the ministry need to do it because the Lord is their reward. It's God that's your reward. Even if you're a Sunday school teacher, a vacation Bible school helper, a usher, a security worker, an elder, it doesn't matter what it might be, serving the Lord, your reward is not the pastor patting you on the back or calling you on the phone saying, you know, oh, we need you so much. We're just so grateful for your ministry and you have to do more and we're so thankful and puffing your head up. Because you're serving the Lord. And when you're serving the Lord, when you're doing it not for John Deming or Lee Coe or or Pastor Daniel, when they're not doing it for a pastor, your reward is where? It's with him. That's, that's what you want. You want that man to say, you want the father to look at you when you finally make it to the promised land. Well done, good, and what? Faithful servant. That's what you want. So when your pastor is moody and got a sour look on his face and all serious before the message begins, or after a service because he heard about something that he can't really even explain. Just remember, those that work and serve the Lord, we do this for him. We're doing it for him. And when you can do the same, all of us do that, it's greater than property, serving the Lord. In Numbers 18, notice this verse here. I'll just refresh your memory with it. Then the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land, nor shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the children of Israel. I love that. It's one of those verses I think that full-time Christian workers should look at and, and rejoice over. As believers, we're all set apart to serve the Lord in some way, shape, or form. And when you think about Jesus in the new covenant as we approach the new covenant, this Sunday, oh, I love this text, this Sunday in, in Mark's gospel, because we have the very last Passover that's ever celebrated, the last Passover by Jesus in Mark chapter 14. Why? Because on the very next day, Jesus is going to become the Passover lamb. And the, he says, this is the new covenant in my what? In my blood. It's the new covenant. Old has passed away. The new's come. I love that. And as believers, again, we all have a part in the kingdom of God now. Unlike the Old Testament saints who live by faith like we do, but they didn't have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit continually. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament would go on a person and leave, go on a king and leave. 
and the Holy Spirit led people that way. But we have the day by day, 24-7 indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's up to us to let the Holy Spirit rule our hearts. He's there. He's working. But you have to let him work in you. And I love the fact that you and I, in the New Testament church, we are a priesthood. Did you know that? New Testament believers are a priesthood. Here's a great verse from Revelation to remind us of that. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. You are, we're kings and priests in the kingdom of God. That's our place. If we'd only act like it. If we'd only act like it. The apostle called the believer, Apostle Peter called the believer a royal priesthood. I love this, 1 Peter 2. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim his praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's my place. I'm a king in the kingdom. That's an unbelievable thought. I'm a chosen generation, I'm a, a part of the royal priesthood, used to be selected people by God, Moses, Aaron, they were the leaders, the priesthood, the Levites, but now if you're a believer in Christ, you're part of that royal priesthood in the New Testament. Here in Numbers 26, it's interesting the people, the, the Levites, are not given any land. But they're giving something that's much more precious. And it's their inheritance in the Lord, just as we have that inheritance in the Lord. Now, number 27, jumping to the next chapter here, deals with women. This is really interesting in the Bible. It's fascinating because after the census and the word gets out to all the people, there's there's couple million people talking about where are we going to live? Where, where are we going to establish? What is our property going to look like? Are we going to be in a valley? Are we going to be on the mountaintop? Where are we going to be? They're, they're questioning. They're wondering. All the people are wondering what's going to happen. They're excited to hear about their inheritance. Well, most of them were, except for the daughters of a man who had five girls and no boys. And because there's no boys, they're concerned about some inheritance. What's going to happen to us? They're widows. They're not necessarily widows. They're women without any brothers to carry their name on. And so they have, they're coming to Moses here. And they're, they're looking to Moses for what's going to happen to us? We don't have a family name. Our father died. We don't have any brothers. There's no relatives to carry. What, what's going to happen to us women? That, that's the answer. It's a very fascinating chapter here. And it's, I've titled this chapter, and we're going to move quickly through it, but the daughters of Zilopihad. Zilopihad is a funny name, but here in chapter 27, we read, Then came the daughters of Zilopihad, the son of Hepner, the son of Gilead, the son of Makur, the son of Manasseh, from the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. And these were the names of his daughters. There's five of them, Mala, Noah, Holga, Milcah, and Tirzah. 
And they stood before Moses, before Eliezer the priest, and before the leaders in the congregation by the doorway of the tabernacle. At the gate, even in Israel today, at the gate, that's where they adjudicate. At the gates where the elders would stand. At the so now they're at the entrance to the temple. That's where Moses, remember, Moses' tent was right across from the entrance of the temple. As you, I, I had that illustration up months ago where you had the tabernacle in the middle and the camp of the people. You know, they were all around in the tribes with a banner raised high. They would camp around their banner, all organized. But right across from the en entrance was the Levites' tent, and it was Moses and Aaron that lived there. And so they're the ones that these women come to, right in front of the tabernacle, the, the entrance. They're going to make their case there. Our father died in the wilderness, but he was not in the company of those who gathered together against the Lord in company of Korah. He wasn't a rebel. Our dad died, and he's not a rebel. Why should the name of our father be removed from among his family? Because he had no son. Give us a possession among our father's brothers. Now, you have to really love these five daughters. They come boldly to Moses. Women have a much easier way to communicate than men. They, have, they use more words. They use more emotion. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, if you've been married to... Uh, your wife for any amount of time, you realize that. I'm not putting women down. I'm just saying they're way better communicating than, than men. So these five women come and they start communicating to Moses about this unfair treatment. They're, they're not going to get any land. They're concerned about it. Remember the hubbub in the, the, the camp is the land. We got numbered. There's going to be land inherited. So they request that they would get this land but because they don't have the name and they're not men, they're concerned about that. And Moses and Aaron, they don't know what to do. It's, this is another interesting thing. They, they don't know what to do. So they do what they always do. Moses goes to prayer. He goes to God in prayer. So this, this section really deals with women and even widows and God's concern for them. Yeah, that's what's wonderful about this. So Moses, verse 5, brought their case before the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, the daughters of... Zelophead, speak what is right. You shall surely give them a possession of inheritance among their father's brothers and cause the inheritance of their father to pass to them. And you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, if a man dies and has no son, then you shall cause his inheritance to pass to his daughter. There it is. Fascinating. Now, what makes this so interesting is because every other nation especially these Canaanites and the Moabites, they treated women very poorly. They were traded, they were bought, they were slaves. But only God in his word elevates a woman to a place of equality. Amen. It's fascinating when you read the Bible. You look at Islam, you look at other writings, and I, I won't even mention some of the more popular ones, but when you look at them closely, you'll see that women don't have the status, they don't have a place. But in the Bible, I love this, the, the scriptures. The scriptures bring a woman from these other cultures and elevate them out of their slavery and to the place where he says they deserve to have land. And then verse 9, if he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. If his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the relative closest to him and his family. So 
The other, in other words, the, the land has to be kept within the family name. That's the key here. It goes to the next of kin, to a daughter if there's no son. But it's going to stay within the family, with the brothers or the, the uncle or whoever. It's going to stay within the family. That's, that's really the key. And it shall be to the children of Israel a statute of judgment, just as the Lord commanded Moses. So this is a new law, by the way. God is making a new law. It wasn't that he left it out. This, this chapter is significant because these women have now exercised something and they've grown in their relationship to God. They're exercising faith. They're asking for something that they believe is theirs, claiming it in a sense by faith, saying, Lord, this isn't fair, or Moses, this isn't fair. You can't just give the land that was supposed to go to our family to someone else just because we're women. And God's, Moses comes and said, God, what about that? I don't know what to do. And God said, well, of course you can't do that. You, ha- you must give the land to these women. It's got to stay within their family. And then the law here in these verses, all about how the, the land would be kept in the family. Now, a- another point I thought about how women are treated in this culture, they're given a place of authority in terms of not, not in government, and not in the home, but they're given, when they get married, they're given a dowry. And a dowry was something that uh, was not, it's not really an inheritance. A dowry was clothing or jewelry or money. Furniture could be anything, but the, the father would give this and generally would, would want the, his future son-in-law to pitch in so that his daughter would have something, just in case he did some bonehead thing and fell off the roof while he's roofing and died, and his, 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 the woman would have money to sustain. The dowry was, was, was uh, hers. And so God has never devalued women in the Bible. They're valuable. And he puts a value and an equality on women when you read about them in the Scripture. So don't let somebody tell you that, you know, the misogyny in the Bible. You'll hear that. I've heard people say that and argue that. They don't like the Bible because it's misogynistic. It's only men. Well, that's just not true. They haven't read the whole Bible. And God is fair, and God is concerned about the widow. God is concerned about equality for women. When other nations had squashed and, and squandered and hurt and sold women like chattel, God elevates them to a proper place. Now notice God is pleased with these women and their request. Notice verse 7, the daughters of Zelophead speak what is right. You shall surely give them a possession of inheritance among their father's brothers and cause the inheritance of their father to pass to them. So God allows the daughters to inherit their father's land. And God answers Moses' prayer. Moses still has, even though he's, he's blown it in his life, he's struggled in his life being obedient to the Lord, He still has this relationship with God. He's still the mediator between God and man. And so he goes to God and God answers his prayer and tells him the procedure of passing on the inheritance to these women. So that's an important lesson here for these daughters, these five daughters of Zelopiad. And and the truth is that they're acting by faith. They're asking they're not demanding. They're saying, wait, wait, this isn't fair. Shouldn't we get land too? Just because, and our dad, remember our dad, he wasn't a rebel. 
You didn't follow Korah. We, we deserve something, and that's what they were asking for that. Even though the land had not been distributed, the lots had not been chosen, they're acting by faith. They're looking forward and asking God by faith for what God has said is coming to the people. So these women, because they're looking by faith and acting by faith, they're commended by God. Paul in Ephesians says this. Notice this verse behind me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with what? We as believers have been blessed. And when you read Ephesians chapter 1, we have riches beyond, but they're spiritual riches. They're riches that if we would only tap into, we would have the peace that we want. If we only would tap into, we'd have the, the provision that we need. Tapping into that, meaning trusting the Lord and being obedient and walking by faith. And in this case, these women coming and say, what about us? This, we, we deserve this. You're going to give this land out. We deserve this. Later, Paul calls the spiritual blessings our guaranteed inheritance. In other words, God provides our spiritual needs, our physical needs, and we're blessed. And Paul's explaining that in Ephesians chapter 1, how we're so blessed. But instead of acting on that and trusting the Lord, and, and when we find ourselves in a difficult place, standing on those promises and claiming those things that God's promised to get us through, we whine and complain and fall back, you know, on our own devices and our own minds. So important for the child of God to trust the Lord for everything, physical needs, material needs, because God has all the riches that we would ever need. And I'm not just talking primarily about monetary, you understand, right? Spiritual riches. So Paul highlights in Ephesians 1, God promises to provide all your needs according to his riches. But our problem is we either ask for ourselves or we don't ask at all. So when we, James says that, when we ask, we ask amiss. We ask for it to be for us, for a personal gain, rather than for God's will in our lives. God, if you will that I have T more time off with my family. God, if you will, if I have more money to spend on the home. God, if you will. But there's nothing wrong to ask God for that. God, I, I really would like to move my place of employment. There's other opportunities. Lord, would you provide this for me? And you ask the Lord by faith. You don't demand it, but you ask and believe that God has those riches. Believe that God has those spiritual blessings to answer your prayers, believing that and walking by faith. That's why these women are commended by God. They, they go to Moses, and they ask God for something that's future. Interesting portion of Scripture. Notice in verse 12, the, we see the passing of Moses. Now the Lord said to Moses, go up into the Mount Abraham and see the land which I have given to the children of Israel. So he's, God's going to let him see it. This, Moses is finally going to see the land. And when you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people. What does that mean? It means you're going to die. So I'm going to show it to you, but you're not going to go in. He says, 
You're going to be gathered to your people as Aaron, your brother, was gathered. For in the wilderness of Zin, during the strife of the congregation, God reminds him why. You rebelled against my command to hollow me at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah. Moses wrote this, so he's writing this little subnote here. These are the waters of Meribah at Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. I remember what I did. I blew it. I got in the flesh. God said, you, the people are angry. The people are frustrated. I, God, am frustrated at the people. But Moses, I want you to go and speak to that rock. And Moses went to the rock. Did he speak to it? He struck it. He didn't strike it, strike it once. He struck it twice. He was mad. He was incensed. And in front of the people, he lost his cool so bad. He misrepresented the grace of God by, by his anger at the people. And when I read that story, I said, well, he had every right to be angry in the flesh, but he was acting as the mediator between God and his people. He was a representation of Christ, and Jesus would never have done that. He would be gracious. And since Moses wasn't gracious, this is what happened to Moses. Moses was not allowed to go in to the promised land. When I was listening to Jay Vernon, which I do every Wednesday, on my drive down the hill on this text, he said he gave his students a question once, and the question was, did Moses ever enter the promised land? It's kind of a tricky question. Don't answer, don't answer. The answer is, yes, he did. When? Mount Transfiguration. Remember? So he did get to go in, but he wasn't allowed in until that moment in time. God allowed him to see it, but he wouldn't allow him to go in. And here's the application for Moses, for us, even, even in this short little brief text about Moses. Disobedience will always keep us from obtaining the spiritual blessing God wants us to have. Disobedience and unfaithfulness will always inhibit cut off the inheritance, the spiritual inheritance God wants for us. Doubting God will always lead to disobedience. As Christians, we're to live a life of faith. We're to trust the Lord for all of our needs, even though it, we look at the checkbook, we look at the job, we look at the prospects, we look at the economy and say, there is absolutely no way that I'm going to make my payment on my house. Well, have you trusted the Lord? He has resources you don't know anything of. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He, he's richer beyond measure, and he can provide for you as his child. So you just need to stand and trust the Lord. But doubting God will always lead to disobedience and unfaithfulness. It robs us of our spiritual blessings. And then we come to the new leader here. Notice in verse 15, then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation. So Moses knows he's, he's done. He's seen the land. He's not going to last much longer. But he's still concerned about the people. And so let, set a man over the congregation. Who's going to be the leader? Who may go before them and go in before them? Who may lead them out and bring them in? That the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep, which have no shepherd. So right after Moses hears about his destiny, about his future, 
He doesn't complain. He's concerned about these people. So Moses has grown. He's mellow. He's a very mellow person. He blew it that one time, but he was a very gentle man. And he uses this metaphor that you see in the scripture all the time, a sheep. People are sheep. You and I tonight, you're sheep. We just kind of all follow each other right over a cliff, into a gully. We just, we're sheep. And we need a shepherd. And God gave us a shepherd. He's the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad you have the good shepherd to lead and guide you? We need to walk by faith. We need to trust in the Lord. We need to, to put our faith in God in every turn, every decision, because he's a good shepherd. John 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. The, the job of a shepherd is to lead and feed and protect. I see that my, as my responsibility to feed you the word of God and to protect you from wolves. We have security guys that do that. I love that. You guys are awesome. And the shepherd is to give guidance along the way. There's times where you might need guidance. You can come to a pastor, Pastor John, Pastor Daniel, myself. You can call us. You can email. You, if you have a question, we have elders at, at the end of services. That's what that's for. You should come up and pray with them and ask them. They've, they know the word. They don't know it perfectly. I don't always have the answer, but I'm like Moses. I'll go to the Lord. We'll, we can pray together. I can put my hand on your shoulder, and I can come to the Lord and say, God, my brother, my sister has this great need, and I see it, and I know you see it. And I don't know how you're going to do it, but I know you're going to fix this. And so we pray together, and we ask the Lord, and we trust the Lord for that. We're shepherds. And Moses now sees the people as scattering like sheep, and they need a shepherd. He's concerned about that. And then in these closing verses, it's Joshua who's chosen. Notice verse 18, and the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom is the spirit. In order to lead in a church, in order to be an elder, in order to be a deacon, you have to be spiritual. You have to be filled with the spirit of God. I can tell you that the men that serve with me in this church that are elders. They're spirit-filled men. And God tells Moses, lay your hand on him. Set him before Eliezer, the priest, and before the congregation. The laying on of hands is not to distribute power. If you came up here for prayer and we lay hands on you, that, there's no, we have no power. There's no electric coming out of our hand. All we're doing is publicly, this is a public demonstration, laying hands on. When, when Pastor John laid hands on me before he left and, and left me as senior pastor here, that was just a public demonstration. There was no transfer of power. I have to trust the Lord daily for everything. You have to trust God in everything in your life. But this laying on of hands is just a public demonstration, kind of an inauguration so everybody knows that the transfer of power from Moses to Joshua here. Verse 20, and you shall give some of your authority to him and that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. He shall stand before Eliezer the priest who shall inquire before the Lord for him by the judgment of the Urim. Remember the Urim and the Thunim? The, we described this when we were going through uh, the earlier part of the book where the priestly garb was described. And the priest had the ephod, and he had the breast 
plate, and he had the, the vest that had the 12 stones representing all the, the tribes. And then he had around his neck, connected to his shoulders, and around his neck on a leather pouch. And in the pouch were the Urim and the Thummim. Thummim. And when the priest didn't know what to do, they would pray and ask the Lord, and they would pull it out and say, yes, or pull it out and say, God says no, kind of like a lot. And that's how God used. He used those things. Uh, you'll see that in the New Testament. They cast lots for Jesus' garments. They chast, cast lots for the, uh, the apostle choosing um, Matthias. There, there, lots God uses mysteriously, but this is what God chose. So that's the, the Urim there that he would have. So that was his representation of a, authority. He would have that. At his word, they shall go out, and at his word, they shall come in. He and all the children of Israel with him, all the congregation. Again, up to this point, Joshua was known as Moses' servant. He was the helper. He was the assistant pastor, in a sense. He did what Moses called him to do. But because Joshua and Caleb were the two spies that had belief, when they went into the land, they came out and said, we can take those giants. We can take these cities. There were only the two, Joshua and Caleb. Joshua now is honored, and he's put in that place of authority. And Joshua is a, we're going to study Joshua next after this book, and you'll find that he's a brilliant uh, general. God led him and gave him wisdom. He was a fantastic general as well. But Moses here lays his hands on Joshua and confirms him publicly and then verse 22, so Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and set him before Eliezer the priest and before all the congregation. And he laid his hands on him and inaugurated him just as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. So there we have, we're coming to the end of Numbers. There's still quite a few chapters here and, and we're going to learn some more. But next week, BBS. So let's pray for that tonight. And we'll close in a worship song. Father, thank you for the word and the application. I just want to take time here at the end of the service to really pray and lift up our Vacation Bible School. I believe, Lord, that from the instruction of the teachers, from the design of the set and the puppet show and the video and all of the elements that come together, the many people that make Vacation Bible School operate, that from that will be a new generation of missionaries, church leaders, pastors, elders, Sunday school teachers. I just remember that I was introduced to the Bible and learned the books of the Bible in Vacation Bible School so long ago. And so we pray tonight together that you would move mightily and the children that come, that they would grasp the truth of your grace, Father, and salvation. That they would hear these stories that they'll hear nowhere else. And even though they're made into dramas and, and plays and, and they're... they're taking your word, Lord, and feeding the little ones with it. I, I just pray that there would be spiritual fruit for years to come. Bless John and his staff. Bless Pastor Daniel and, and all of the youth that are going to be 
working on all the servants and the teachers and the helpers and snack people and game people and all that goes on. Lord, we ask that you would bless it because we want to see your name made bigger in their lives. We want to see you glorified, Lord. And so won't you do that? Keep them safe on the lot. Provide for them, Lord, and spiritual blessings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.